0: Good morning everybody. Great to see everybody here. Happy 4th of July weekend to everyone and our prayers are out for those that may be traveling on the 4th of July weekend and aren't able to be here today. I pray that you'd be able to return um, safely and in in due time. John, don't get too comfortable. Okay, if you could grab me a water bottle, please. I am parched. I I, I guess. I'm not as much of a a germaphobe on that as maybe some other people might be. Um, Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see every one of you today. Um, The phrase I want to begin this morning with is this they say that imitation is one of the highest forms of flattery. Have you ever heard that expression before? Imitation. Thank you. Thank you. What a servant. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Those that we look at and we appreciate something about, we respect somebody about, we, we love or, or, or greatly desire to be with somebody, we many times find ourselves imitating some of the things that they may say or do. And I've been able to be, after college, I grew up at this church, but after college, I was able to come back and I really plug into the church community here, and I've uh, really enjoyed that. And I found myself in different ways imitating different people, or just different expressions that people do. I call myself sometimes a uh, a social chameleon in some ways, that whenever I'm with people, I might say things that they may say not to repeat or to 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 be that kind of person, but imitation really is the highest form of flattery. The first way that I would say that is that um, the other pastor that's here, Pastor John, as many of you know, is from the south, and I remember living in Chicago with some friends, and there was some southern friends that I had there, and I remember saying, I will never one day catch myself saying, y'all, I'm just not going to do it. That's not me. And yet, being here for roughly three years, I found myself saying, y'all, more than I am proud to say. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Another example, perhaps, is for those of you that are married. You would know that there's sort of the adage that um, spouses begin to look alike and act alike and and maybe have certain tics or ways or things that they find funny inside jokes, for example. And I know that anybody who's been married might find themselves uh, imitating their spouse, maybe a joke that they make, maybe a certain way that they do things. Um, maybe a personality trait, as, as, as two people come closer together, in many ways their, their personalities and their jokes can, can blend together. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. We imitate those that we respect. We imitate those that we think are important and that we think we should act like. I bring all of that up because this passage, as Pastor John mentioned, this whole passage is based around the idea of imitating the greatest being that we could ever even fathom, that being God. I think sometimes we look at the scriptures and see the ministry of Jesus on this earth and it feels somewhat alien to us. We we, we see the way that Jesus acted and it doesn't seem normal, but I ask, is that a good thing? Imitation is the highest form of flattery, correct? And so with that, we're going to look into this passage where Paul uniquely challenges the Ephesians to imitate Christ. And how do we imitate Christ? How does Paul recommend us to imitate Christ? Because that's a big ask. There's some ways that we cannot imitate Christ. So how do we do that? How do we break that down and understand that for you and I on this Sunday morning? Well, I've broken it down into three major points the three major points are this Uh, to imitate god is to do this to put away the old is to show the new and to live by the spirit i'll say it again to imitate god is to put away the old to show the new and to live by the spirit We're going to understand a little bit more of what each of those points means. I'm going to start us off by, and so if you have your, I forgot to mention, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. we got a bit of a sizable chunk of the passage today, but we're going to make it through it. We're going to do this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, The passage says this. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, then we're going to spend a moment in prayer, and then we're going to take some time taking apart the passage and seeing what the Lord has for us this morning. So please, if you would, join me in reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. It says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a lot to talk about. Let's pray before we jump into this. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we look at this passage and we compare the need that we have to learn from you with the recognition of some of the difficulties or highs and lows that we've had in this past week. Lord, I pray for each and every person in this room. I pray for the goods, the bads, the pretties, the uglies, the different struggles and the different praises that we have had as a body, that we have all had as different people, a part of your body. Lord, you know the highs and lows of our life. Lord, you know the goods and bads. You know the hurts and the triumphs. God, I pray that in this time this morning, we would be able to though recognize that those things are, are there in a part of our lives, that we would recognize and that we would um, know that there is time now to, to hear from you. Lord, I pray that we would all hear from you this morning. I pray that you would be with me. I pray that you would use my words in a way that honors and glorifies you, keep me from error in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us where we need encouraging and that you would convict us where we need convicting. But Lord, might that happen not by anything that I could manufacture in my own strength, but may that happen by the way that your spirit is active and working even now. Be with all of us this morning. Bring us closer to you by the end of this service, and may it encourage us to go out into the world and and serve you and be a, a living example of the ways and the beauties of the gospel revealed. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Dave Eubank talked to us, kind of jumping back into the previous passage. We saw, therefore, at the beginning of verse 5, it causes us to look back into the previous passage. And one of the points that really stuck out to me from the previous passage was the act that we have of taking off the old self and putting on the new self. The, the thing that happens to us once salvation has happened already, once we believed in Jesus, repented of our sins, we now enter a new part of our lives as believers called the process of sanctification, the process of, of of setting ourselves apart from the world around us, living for God, learning how to live for God, and learning how to set ourselves apart from the world. It's that, that imagery, as Dave mentioned, of taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. Those are actions that you and I must take. Why? Because as we've been learning in Ephesians, the gospel revealed changes everything. The gospel revealed changes everything about you and me. If there's a part of our lives that is not affected by the all-reaching gospel, there's a part of us that doesn't understand the gospel as much as we should. There's a very frank truth that we find here in the book of Ephesians. And, and, and Paul recognizes this idea, the, the bigness of the challenge of what it would mean to live more towards God. How do I do that? And this is where Paul jumps into chapter 5 here, and he says, based on that command, we are to imitate God. Verse 1 and 2 says, Imit, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ. Loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Everything in chapter 5, both this passage and the next passage that we're going to explore next week, all holds itself together with this overarching command of being imitators of God and walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The way that we take off the old self and put on the new self is look to the perfect example that the scriptures have given us, that being the life of our Savior Jesus Christ. That is our example. That is how we do that action of taking off and putting on. And Paul here highlights some unique places that I think the Ephesians would have. He's, he's speaking to real people with real issues, with real struggles. And different communities may have different struggles. And these are the unique ones that we find in Ephesians. And I think that they connect in some ways to the struggles that you and I may encounter in today's world. We're going to start off in this first section. Again, the three points are putting away the old, showing the new, and living by the Spirit Let's start with putting away the old. I'm going to read again verses 1 through 6. Please join me. I'll start at verse 3, verses 3 through 6. Please join me. This is the putting off the old. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We've mentioned this before. This is one of those, we called it this before, this is one of those do-do-don't do passages. It's a fun way to say it, and I like saying it, and I'm a little immature. And so I think it's fun to say it to get a little bit of, of levity going on. But this is what's called a do-do-don't-do passage. It's where, where the, the biblical writer is looking at your life and mine and, and looking at the ways that we are supposed to do life and the ways that we are supposed to not do life. And that many times forms in those long lists of here's the things you do and here's the things you don't do. And sometimes those passages are difficult to, to preach on. But I think this one is a very unique one, very interesting one. And we'll get into that a little bit later here. But Paul mentions a number of different sins that he specifically, uniquely encourages and commands us in order to be imitators of God, we must put these things away. We must have nothing to do with these different warnings. And the list is as follows. Sexual immorality and impurity. Crude joking covetousness and idolatry. We'll talk about those for a moment here, but I want us to take a step back because I think sometimes we see these lists of sins and say that we kind of we gauge and value some sins as being worse than other sins. And we have to recognize that God views all sins equally to some degree, though different sins have different consequences as a result of their actions. But these, path, these, these, these sins in particular, and I think in general many different things that we um, do that is sinful against God, are interesting. Because we have to ask the question, why why are these things bad things? I think that's a very important question to understand, because if we leave this as simply just a list of a do this, don't do this, we're not given a reason. We're just said told, don't do it. So why? What's wrong with these things? It may sound like a silly question, but why? Why shouldn't we do these things? As I was looking at each of these different sins that that Paul challenges us to take off, to put off, it's interesting because all of these sins, in some ways, tap into a deeper desire that you and I have as human that God designed intentionally. Intentionally. I think what happens with sin, and I think the reason that sin is so bad, is because God wired each and every one of us in a unique way to work as humans. And the, the way that God wired us was to, was to seek out certain things or desires in a good and honoring way, a way that God designed us to do. Yet after the fall, after Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruits, what we've done is we've taken these desires and we've twisted them for our own Selfish purposes. Something that was designed to be good has turned out for us to to be very evil as well. I think a real life example might be able to help us with this. Does anybody know the name Fritz Haber? Fritz Haber. Does anybody know that name? Nobody. One person knows that name, but he feels too bashful to say it. Our friendly uh, resident scientist here, Mr. John Funn. Fritz Haber was a German scientist during the time of the Industrial Revolution. It would have been the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I'm going to jump into science here for a moment. And then whenever I jump into science, that's a place to be cautious because science is not my forte. But Fritz Haber, I don't even know if I'm saying this guy's name right. Am I saying his name right? Who knows? He's, he's gone now. It doesn't matter. But this guy, he invented something. I'm going to say it, and you're going to go, What's the big deal with this? He invented something called nitrogen fertilizer. Fascinating. Nitrogen fertilizer. What this was is this was a type of fertilizer that, could, that was more effective at growing plants than the other fertilizer had been. It was a chemical kind of fertilizer. Beforehand, it would have been things like manure or waste from animals. This is a new kind of fertilizer that pulled nitrogen out of the air and formed it into a condensed, like, physical thing that you would put in the ground and grow more crops. Did I get that right, generally speaking? Who knows? Who knows? Whatever. That's probably right. But whatever it was in its specificity, it was something that allowed crops to grow at an exponential rate. In a time in the world where food was not readily available at all. In a time and place where food was not as expanded and globalized and commercialized as it is today, where we're walking through Meijer and there's five different options of ranch dressing. It was a different place, and this was a good thing. It allowed the life expectancy to rise incredibly. It stopped people from dying from starvation at an alarming rate. That's one of the beautiful things about the Industrial Revolution. And also, the same science that took nitrogen out of the air and made fertilizer to to cause crops to exponentially increase was the same science that was also used to invent what you and I might call chemical warfare. Mustard gas, things that were used in the First World War to kill millions of soldiers and civilians alike, and in the Second World War led to the death of six Seven, eight million Jews, gypsies, and on and on and on. Something that was designed for good had the opportunity for evil to come. Something that was designed for good had the opportunity for evil to come when humanity gets its hands on it and twists it selfishly. That's a physical example of a spiritual reality here. Let's talk about some of these different things here for a moment, some of these different sins. The first one that's mentioned is sexual immorality and impurity. Yes, we're going to go there this morning just to prepare you for a moment. Not too far into this, but this is something that the church, I think in some ways, has mishandled to a very big, very large degree. The topic of sex and sexuality has been one that has, whenever it's talked about, it's talked about in an extreme term or it's talked about in a list of do's and don'ts. And it, takes, it, it sits at that command level. And we don't actually get down to the fact that why did God create sex and sexuality? Why did God give that to you and me as people? God gave it to us as a blessing as a gift, as a way for, way for it to be expressed in a context to serve and to sacrifice for somebody else uniquely in, in God's view in a marital context between one man and one woman. Something that's designed for good to bring two people together in a way that could never happen in any other way possible. It's a good thing. And yet man, humanity, because of our sin, turns it into a selfish thing. It goes from something to serve and to sacrifice to something that can give somebody or somebody, gives them selfish pleasure, selfish enjoyment. It goes from giving to receiving. Notice that, how that sin switched. Something that's good that turned selfish. Another example here would be crude joking. God gave us our mouths. God gave us voice boxes. God gave us the ability to speak, the ability to understand languages. And he gave it to us for the purpose of encouraging one another, building up one another, helping one another, providing wisdom and advice and learning and growing together. God gave us our mouths and our words for a very specific reason, to help each other. And yet that good blessing twisted by sin turns into crude joking. What does the scripture say specifically? Filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Those are the words that are used there specifically. The, the Greek words there bring about this idea of slandering, of, 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 of gossiping, of speaking, of putting somebody down with our words, Think about that. God designed our words and our mouths to lift each other up, yet our sin causes us to use our words to put each other down. The exact polar opposite of God's intended design. Going against God's design. The next one, covetousness. The the covetousness, this this idea of desiring, the Ten Commandments say desiring your neighbor's house or your neighbor's spouse or wife, and it's desiring something that I do not have. The the Ten Commandments say it that way. We could say it in multiple different ways in our current cultural context. Some could call it keeping up with the Joneses. They have that and I want that, so I'm going to get my own version of that. God gave us a natural desire to desire. God gave us the ability to desire things, I think primarily so that we would desire things that are bigger than ourselves, that being God. God gave us a desire to desire so that we would desire the most desirable thing, God. Say that five times. And yet, we took that desire to desire and we twisted it. And made it about me me getting the next thing whatever that is getting the next upgrade on the phone getting the next i don't know whatever it would be for me it could be a new computer for you it might be something else entirely good things that are twisted and become self-gratifying the final thing he gives is that all of these things sum up into an idolater, idolatry. Idolatry is, the, is, is us desiring to worship something else in the place of God. It's us physically removing God from the throne of our lives and putting something else in place of him. Again, God gave us the ability and desire to look to things that are bigger than ourselves to give us self-satisfaction. We realize that we are finite people that we aren't eternal, that we, aren't, we can't fully satisfy ourselves. We're looking to something else to satisfy us. God designed us that way intentionally to desire to look to him to give us full satisfaction in life. The good desire of wanting to pursue God and worship him above all things. And yet we twist it. Am I getting repetitive here? We twist it. To put other things up. Sometimes we put up maybe our families. Sometimes we put up our jobs. Sometimes we put up our spouses. Sometimes we put up activities or hobbies that we do. Things we do in our spare time and we say, that's the time that I really enjoy. We put so many different things in the place that only God should be. This is not just a rule book to follow. This is not just a do, do, and a don't do. This is a recognizing that God designed us a very specific way. And when we say that we know better, how foolish do we sound? It's not just putting off to feel good. It's putting off things that God says those aren't going to give you satisfaction that only God can. Those things are not going to get you through life in the way that only God can. Put off those things. He ends it, I think, with a connection into the next part of this passage, where he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. For those of you that might remember Ephesians chapter 2, Talks about how we were once the children of wrath and sons of disobedience and all, and the, well, under the prince, the power, of the heirs. See the connection between that Paul is even making there? He's saying that that's still a reality, but you are no longer a part of that because you have chosen Christ. And he introduces us into this next section of the passage where we just went into putting away the old. We're now jumping into showing. The new. Notice the difference between showing the new versus putting on the new. I think that they're connected, but I think this is what the passage tells us to do here. I'm going to read verses 7 through 17. This is the next section of the passage that we're going to go through. It says this. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. In the past, this section ends with, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we were first off at this place of taking off the old, and now you, you see a lot of Paul using the word walk. When Paul uses the word walk, he says, walk as children Of light in this passage. When Paul uses that word walk, he's talking about how you and I are supposed to live out our lives, supposed to do life. It's not a specific journey, it is the journey that we are on. This is all encompassing of our lives, how we are supposed to do life. We're going to go verse by verse. On this one. It starts on in verse 7 therefore, do not become partners with them, them being the sons of disobedience. This is an interesting one because different people that have claimed themselves Christians will interpret this one in different ways. And if you take this to its fullest extent, then we have to look at our Amish brothers and sisters and give them credit for what they're doing. But I don't think that's exactly what this passage is saying, because you take this to its furthest extent, do not become partners with them, them being the sons of disobedience, the sons of disobedience being those that have not believed that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. If we're to take that to its fullest extreme, then we've got a a lot of work to do. But I don't think that's what this passage is saying. That word partner there... The Greek word for that is how we get the modern word symmetry. I don't remember the exact word of what that one is, but that's how we get the modern word of the Greek of modern English word symmetry, things that are similar, things that are moving in symmetry, things that are moving together. And I think that this passage is telling us instead of avoiding the world around us, We are to watch carefully at the ways that we live and ask the question, are we living? Are we having habits or activities that reflect more of the way that the world is moving versus what God has called us to? It's not as an extreme one, but I think it's the harder choice. It's easy to just move away, go into the woods, and form a little group. It's really easy to do that. You and I could do that after lunch today. It's not that hard. What's harder is living in the world that we are in now, recognizing that sin is a very real thing in this world, and until Jesus comes back, it's going to stay. It's a lot harder to do. How does Paul encourage? Well, let's continue moving in the passage. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul reminds us, and he, he, he makes sure to remind us multiple different times, that we're not as good as we think we are. I appreciate when the biblical writers tell us, Such was you. You were in this place too. And the only thing that took you out of this place, the only thing that took you out of the sin that you lived in, following the ways of the world, was the mercy of God. Not anything that you did. I think sometimes we can form very um, moral superiority complexes on the world around us. We can say, why in the world would they do that? They don't know the right answer. How could they not know the right answer. And we get this sort of puffed up chest and these firm shoulders and this sort of attitude about ourselves, where we think we've got it together. And here Paul is directly challenging in that and saying, such was you. But something's changed, and that thing that's changed isn't you figuring it out, but is God changing your desires. We aren't as good as we would like to think that we are, and we need to remember that. Verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. This is a very, very interesting part of this passage. This is a tricky part. Because if you read that at face value, it sounds a lot like what Paul is telling the Ephesians to do and what God is telling us to do is that we are to go out into the world and call out sin when we see it. Let me read it again after I put that thought in your head. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. What's this passage? What's this part saying? I think we have to recognize when you, when you find a part like this that seems a little off or sounds a little weird, we got to look at the entirety of Scripture to help us zero this in. And this is one that, as a, as a person that's not a fan of conflict, I don't like the thought or the sound of this verse. I'm not a conflict person. I don't like it. I don't think anybody necessarily likes it. I think if you like it, there's a bigger problem. But I think some people are more comfortable with it than others. I'm not one that enjoys it. I don't, it's just not, I, I get really iffy about it. It's just how, how, how I am. It's a part of me. It's something I need to work on in a lot, a lot of ways. And so let's try to figure out a little bit of what this passage is saying because I think to some extent there is a directive here that Paul is saying that we do have to recognize that there is sin in the world and there is a part of us that needs to be active in in bringing God's kingdom to earth in working out the sin in your life and mine and, and to a greater extent for the sin in the world around us. Now obviously I think that there's some places we fall short in this. I think we fall short in this in one of two extremes. Either we avoid the idea of doing this entirely because I don't think it matches a lot with our you know 21st century American individualistic cultural framework. It's not really something that anybody's doing or saying we should do on a normal day. So I think some ways we avoid it entirely but I think in other ways some of us can 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 go a little bit too crazy with it. And we can get our gain incredible inspiration by Jesus flipping tables at the temple and therefore say that we must do that in any situation that we presented with that is unrighteous or unsinful or sinful in the way that I see it. I think those are two extremes that we have to be careful with. I think they both have their own unique issues. So let's get some framework around this to help us fill in this puzzle. The first thing I want to say is that Paul in this passage doesn't focus just on the world around us. Paul focus kind of jumps in and out of how I'm supposed to look at myself, how we as the church are supposed to look at each other, and how we as the church are supposed to look at the world around us. Paul kind of moves in and out of these thoughts. He doesn't sit on one thing in particular, and I think he does that on purpose because I think this isn't as easy as we would like to believe. I also think we need to recognize that we as the church are called in every way to hold each other accountable. We are called to work out with each other, grow closer together, and as we grow in relationship with each other, we recognize the fact that we are not perfect people, that we are sinful people. And that we all have sin issues that need to be rooted out of our lives and so many of those sin issues we are either blind to or we choose to ignore and we need the intervention of our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us to kill the sin of the flesh that is in us that is a full command in Scripture something that you are required to do for me and that I am required to do for you and if I get mad at it you can bring me to the Scripture and say see and I could do likewise. That is a command that the scriptures give us. We are to help each other out in this way. Obviously, the scriptures tell us to do it in love, do it in kindness, do it gently, but the command is there. Let's see, we're also... I think also a part of this passage reminds us that we need to check ourselves before we go and check somebody else. It's very similar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount of removing the speck out of your own eye or the the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck out of your brothers. I think that passage is interpreted sometimes very unfairly to suggest that we cannot judge each other or we shouldn't judge each other because of our own sin. I think that Jesus wasn't going in that direction, but he was warning us that whenever we go and possibly remove the speck of another person's eye, we must make sure and look at ourselves and ask him, is there any hypocrisy in my heart when I'm doing this because I have not addressed these issues in my life? I think that's also a very important part of this passage and why, to some degree, Paul tells us that we need to check ourselves, and he mentioned it beforehand in, this, in the passage beforehand. And I think the final point to mention here is we have to ask, what's the end goal? If God wants us to reach out and to expose the works of darkness, notice again it says works of darkness, not peoples of darkness. Notice that distinction. That's an important distinction. But what's the end goal of that? Why should you and I do that? And how should we do that? I think when we look at what's going on a little bit later, we talk, get into this idea of children of light. And it says, let's see here. It says in verse 13, When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What's that talking about? That's talking, I think, about repentance. Repentance. We don't expose sin in other people's lives to make ourselves feel better. We don't expose sin in other people's lives to be on the right side of history. We don't expose sin in the world around us for Facebook likes, comments, and shares. We expose sin to bring repentance. That needs to be the end goal, and if it is not, I would heavily caution you if you think you should expose somebody else's sin. If that is not your end goal, I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. And so that requires you and I to ask the question, is this a person I'm in relationship with that this person trusts me? This person knows I have their best interest in mind, and this person... that knows that I actually care about them so that if I do bring up an issue in their life, they would know that love, recognize that love, and still be able to keep that trust and also recognize that they are sinful and need to kill that sin. I think that narrows down this list quite a bit in our lives. I think an incredibly important part of this is to recognize that if it wouldn't lead to, if there's not a trust and a relationship there that we think would help lead to repentance, we must be very careful with the idea of doing that. I think there's other parts in the Scripture uniquely that Paul tells people to call out, or not Paul, but God calls people to call out sin and knowing that they won't repent, the prophets of the Old Testament. So I don't want to say entirely that's not true, but I do think that we have to recognize, first off, the uniqueness of the role of the prophets. And secondly, that that was a God-ordained intervention, not something that the prophets woke up one day and said, oh, I need to go do this. And also recognize that those prophets weren't very happy that they were doing it. There's a reason Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. So those are some general, I think, boundaries around this question that forces us to, that helps us understand this one a little bit more. And I think there's good examples of ways that we can do this. First off, I think the most important way is individually, one-on-one, in the body with someone that we know, trust, and love, and they know and trust and love us. I think that's an incredible place to do this. I think other points where the church has done this in history, and one that I would point out specifically would be some of the ways that the African-American church had helped to battle against slavery and segregation, the white church as well. I think one church, but sometimes we divide more ways that we should. But I think that's a good example that did bring about repentance, that did bring about recognition of sin, that brought God's kingdom a moment closer. I think that's a wonderful example of that. But also, again, it's how you do it that we must be careful. So that's a lot of different things to keep in mind. And I think Paul recognizes that when he says in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul recognizes that what he is doing is a very difficult tightrope to walk. And so he's saying that we've got to walk wisely in wisdom. And we have to figure out how to make the best use of the time that God has given us on this earth right now. You and I need to look at the ways that we are using our time and ask the question, is this way that I'm using the time benefiting the kingdom? Is me sitting on my computer for six hours a day benefiting the kingdom? Is us binge-watching Netflix benefiting the kingdom? I think, again, we have to be careful with these different things and not draw stark black lines on these. But we need to ask these questions. Are the things that I do in my free time benefiting the kingdom? I think that's an incredible question that you and I need to ask to show the new. We live in a world that loves hobbies, that loves adventures, that loves different little things that we different people get to do. How do we show the fact that God has changed our life? I think use a lot of that time in ways that are edifying and building up of the church spending time in relationship with each other, looking into God's word, learning more about him, doing things that would build each other up. So we had our put away the old. We had our show the new. We get to this last part. I'm going to start in verse 17 and read to the end of the passage. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 18 tells us very clearly the third part of this passage. Be filled by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. One of the ways that we imitate Christ is by living not by our desires, but by the desires that the Holy Spirit puts in into us the holy spirit gives to us to live in this world and i think that that's a beautiful way to imitate christ because he was his ministry was categorized or characterized by going not according to his will but the will of the father or following the will of the spirit when jesus went out into the wilderness to face satan and the temptations and being fasting it says that he was he was moved by the spirit He was guided by the spirit. I don't know the exact word of that, but it was a spirit action that he followed that led to the showdown with Satan in the desert for 40 days. You and I are to live lives that aren't characterized by my own selfish desires, but by the character that God gives to me, and that I am supposed to live out. We see that in verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Pause, just want to briefly touch on that part. I think many times that verse, gets used a little too much, and specifically around the conversation of alcohol and what is wise and what is unwise in consuming alcohol. Alcohol was a very prominent part of the culture of the day. It was a very prominent part, and it was specifically used in a lot of religious Festivals and it was incredibly concentrated. It was incredibly strong. It didn't take much for somebody to get tipsy in modern terminology. And I think Paul's recognizing that, and I don't, but I also don't think this is a direct and full prohibition of alcohol. I think there's wisdom in recognizing when it is wise and unwise to intake, and there's certain people that may have family lines of alcoholism and recognize that there are genetic components passed down for families that have been affected by alcoholism that would make it unwise to drink alcohol. But I do also think that the main point in this passage isn't Paul saying, put down your wine glass. If he was, it'd be awkward since we're celebrating communion soon. But I think what he's asking is not that. I think what he's asking is, what is controlling your and my life? What are we letting control our lives? This isn't just a conversation of alcohol. This is a conversation of anything, any person, what people are controlling our lives. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. There's ways that that could be done incorrectly. What people are controlling our lives, what medias are controlling our lives, what earthly groups or organizations are controlling our lives. What am I letting control my life that is me, that is not good? None of these things should control our lives, but the Spirit of God must control our life. Not any of these other things. And I think uniquely for the Ephesians, the issue would have been alcohol. I think that's what this passage is saying. And whenever a preacher gets up and says, live by the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, walk according to the Spirit, I think that's a very lofty spiritual thing to say, but I don't think any of us understand what that means. I think it's a weird thing to try to capture and grasp in my mind. How do I know if the Spirit is is guiding and directing my life? How do I know that's happening? I think that there's two answers. One of those is in this passage, and another one is in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the singular term, fruit, not fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I forget them every now and then. I still got them. But those are ways that we can look at in our lives and say, am I living out these fruits, this fruit? Am I living this out? If I am, there's a good chance that, the, that it is not I, but Christ who lives in me that is the one that's doing this work. And this passage, I think, also gives us an example, and that's the part right after this, after it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here is the fruits, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think those are four very clear fruits that we know that we are being led by the Spirit if we see these things in our lives. To address Pastor John's question earlier about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I don't think that's a, that's a one, two, three step, okay, you're good. I think that's a general categorization because I think that hymns would be classified as spiritual songs, and I think that psalms would be classified as spiritual songs, and I think spiritual songs would be classified as spiritual songs. just felt like I needed to say that. You mentioned it before. I'll answer that question. I don't think it's a specific genre, Right? I don't think that great is thy faithfulness is any better or worse than King of Kings. They both communicate the same God, gospel, hope, and satisfaction that you and I have. And I think that when we, the the issue is less genre and the, the issue is more are we praising God together? And I think another layer to that question is, are we praising God just because that's what we do at the beginning of a service? No hate on the worship team. That's a, I love the worship team. You guys did a great job today. Thank you for all the different things you did there. But I think we can get stuck in the motions that we forget of the praises that we are giving to the Savior of our soul. And if the only time that you and I are singing praises to God is at church on Sunday morning, I think that there is reason to question. I think if that's the only time, just like if it's the only time on Sunday morning we're studying the Bible, I think there is reason for concern and question. This is an act, a fruit of the Spirit in our lives, not just on Sunday morning. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a progressive thing, I think. And I think that this is one that the Spirit teaches us how to do. It's hard to give thanks for everything when we are in moments of incredible suffering, loss of loved one, unexpected tragedy, hardships in life. I think that's a hard thing to do, but I think that there's a progression that can happen, that the longer we we sit in that struggle and the longer that God sits with us, we begin to see God working through those difficulties in our lives to the point that we can't give thanks at the moment of the suffering, but several years down the line, perhaps we can look back and see the handiwork of God in the midst of our hardships and say, God, it wasn't easy. I still don't understand all of it. But at the very least God thank you for bringing me thus far and thank you for showing your fruit in the midst of my suffering. I think that's a very important part to recognize there. It's not something that we can expect the loss of a loved one yesterday and somebody to come in today completely perfect and ready to go. That's a learn. That's a learned giving thanks for everything. And the final one, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We've been talking a lot about submission recently between the first Peter sermon and also in Ephesians here. And we're going to continue talking about it. We're going to have a unique conversation about it next Sunday. Be excited for that one. But one of the ways that God, I, we, I, I think we're, we're surprised that submission is a fruit when we look at Jesus' ministry being characterized by his submission to the will of the Father. It shouldn't be a surprising thing for you and me that submission is a fruit of the Spirit when Jesus characterized that better than anybody else we will ever see. And when you and I are preferring each other, when we are serving and bearing one another's burdens, um, holding each other up in love, preferring the interests of someone else over the interests of ourself, we are practicing the fruit of the Spirit in the mission of God, when Jesus desired relationships with us and that ultimate glory for his name, so much so that he did come to this earth in human form, live a perfect life, die a perfect death for us imperfect sinners. These are those fruits of the Spirit. This is how you and I can know if we are living by the Spirit. Addressing one another in song, making melodies to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks for everything to God, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In imitating God, we are showing those around us in and outside of the church a better option of living one that is not self giving, nor is it selfish, but one that pleases God and is a walking testimony of his power and love in us. Imitation is indeed one of the highest forms of flattery. And imitation is how we are commanded in the scriptures to show God our devotion to him. Who are you and I imitating? Do we see the actions we do every day in the ministry of our Lord Jesus? Does he seem utterly alien? When we read the scriptures and say, I don't live like that. I don't always know how to do that. Put away the old, show the new, live by the Spirit. I think that's a good check for you and I to recognize that the gospel revealed changes everything and this is everything mentioned. Imitation is indeed the highest form of flattery. Now let's show each other in the world that the one that we desire most is God, is the life that he lived as a perfect example for us until he comes again.